0: Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time.
1: My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you.
2: Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rock and Randall Colburn, and today we are going to elaborate on some themes we've been glancing upon throughout pretty much the entirety of this podcast, uh... A lot of the things we're going to discuss here are prevalent in King's sort of entire oeuvre. Um, He's been open about his journey to sobriety, which began in the late 80s. And if you listen to our episode on desperation, you know there's plenty of that journey in his writing, and we have a lot of thoughts about it. So today we're going to talk about addiction and recovery as it manifests in King's work. Uh, Quick content warning, we're going to be talking about addiction and alcohol and drug use. If you're not in a place where you can hear this right now, take a break, come back later, the episode will be here. Uh, we'll also be offering some resources at the end of the show for people who may not be, or for, who may be interested in that. Um, but before we get started, I want to say hello to our panel. Jen, introduce yourself, say hello. And when did you start to perhaps notice these themes of recovery in King's work?
3: Um, hi, this is Jen to The Rage Adams. And I um, pr- probably since the beginning of me reading King. I think I resonated with a lot of it. Um, I don't think I really realized that I was resonating with it until, um, I don't know, maybe even five-ish years ago. It was really, I think maybe around the time Dr. Sleep came out. Mm -hmm. Um, I am in recovery for, um, I'm an alcoholic, which we will talk about. Um, and I also have a, a really troublesome relationship with my dad. So I think I had been reading about a lot of this stuff and resonating with it and being drawn to it Mm -hmm. without realizing why. And it could be that that's why I love Stephen King so much, because one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was you could really read about 90% of his work through the lens of addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of common themes that I find that have helped me kind of understand my thought processes, um, but yeah, I think Dr. Sleep was really kind of the tipping point for me because I think that was also a time when I was starting to kind of um explore um my own recovery mm-hmm. and therapy and you know a lot of like the the words and techniques and stuff were Yeah. kind of I understood more, you know.
2: Right. Cool. And uh Anna, say hello.
0: This is Anna Kenta Cox. <laughs> hey. I think I finally settled on my nickname. I like um, love it. <laughs> so I've always, always, uh, ever since I started reading Stephen King in about middle school, I've been a fan. I think Christine was the first book I read. Yeah. And, you know, I was a child of an alcoholic at the time, still am, uh, and, you know, got started on my drinking career, you know, pretty soon after that, although it didn't become a problem, well- we can talk about when things become a problem, but I didn't recognize it was a problem, and I was pretty functional um, until my until my 30s, um, and still was a huge Stephen King fan, just read everything of his, and um, then, you know, I started to hit bottom, had a few, because you can keep falling through mm-hmm. um, <laughs> if you don't start going up, and in the end, uh, I had a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. And found myself in a uh, psych ward. And for some reason, I had a copy of The Shining.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember reading it and being like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I was traveling at the time, so I probably had some books. And the psych ward, they take away like your shoelaces and your belt and stuff. Mm-hmm. But. Books you can't Especially like a paperback they're not gonna Take Mm -hmm. it away Um, Funnily enough at rehab they take away all your Outside reading Oh really? Yeah Um, I think I managed to let them uh, Let them let me I managed to have them let me keep um, A fan's notes Mm. Because it's a drinking memoir Yeah Um, So you know, that was, like, when I think I really twigged onto it. I, I knew it before. Like, I knew, I think I knew he was in recovery. I'm not sure. Um, But, uh, s- oh, I did, did know he was in recovery because my mom started going to meetings in New Hampshire mm-hmm. and had some crossover meetings in Maine. Like, she knew people who were, went to meetings in Maine. And she told me that someone she knew was at a meeting, like, one of King's regular meetings. Oh,
2: wow. Interesting. Oh,
0: wow. And I, 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 think that hit me in a, like a, a pretty deep way, even at the time when I was like, huh, yeah. you know, like, wow, he actually like does it mm-hmm. like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Okay. And then, um, you know, I started to reread a lot of his stuff. He is my comfort reading in yeah. early sobriety. And... I mean, we'll talk about sort of these, this insight I had about Father Callahan and how I really kind of just it, it made a big shift in my recovery in some ways. It, it's just brought me closer to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sort of in a weird way per, almost like made it like I feel almost too close to him to hmm. ever meet him in person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Uh, because I find so much of my story in his story. But that's true of a lot of people who are alcoholics, I should say, like we all find each other in each other's story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make him especially special, except his ability to express the interior of what it's like to be an alcoholic.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And And even
3: when he didn't know he was doing it, because we're going to talk about The Shining, like, (laughs) right. Which I just think is fascinating. But yeah, I have um, this memory of being in a meeting one time and just talking. And I kind of just started talking and wasn't sure what I was going to say. And I ended up sharing this thing about sweaters and like being afraid I was going to wear my sweater and it would get ruined or something. And like five people in the meeting were like, yeah, I do that. And I thought it was this really weird thing that I had done. But it's just (laughs) so funny how like those small things are like a function of this like thought process, you know, that is just really common throughout a lot of people in recovery, you know, or with addiction.
2: Yeah, you know, and it is interesting because I was, you know, digging up some old quotes uh, that King has made about, you know, his journey and an interviewer asked him, I believe it was in uh, The Guardian, you know, they sort of asked him what his rock bottom moment was because um, King was talking about writing Dr. Sleep and and uh, Owen, his son, basically said we need to see Danny's rock bottom moment because he mentioned the scene in The Shining. Um, and by the way, when we do mention a book, uh, just for the listeners, we probably will be speaking Spoiling some things, so I'm gonna try to do our best in the episode notes to note when we're talking about certain books. Um, but yeah, just know that if we're talking about something and you don't want it spoiled, you might want to jump ahead a little bit. But uh, but essentially, Owen was like, "Well, we have that yeah. scene in The Shining with um, with Jack and then his uh, his booze buddy who, when they run over the kid's bike, you know, and it's sort of the mm-hmm. they don't know if they hit a kid, and it's one of the best scenes in the book, and it's also jack's rock bottom moment and uh so the interviewer asking what was your rock bottom moment and he says well i didn't have one that was as dramatic as that but he tells this story about being at one of uh, his son's little league games with a can of beer and a paper bag and the coach coming over to me and saying if that's an alcoholic beverage you're gonna have to leave that was where i said to myself that's something i'll never be able to tell anybody else i'll keep that one to myself and he says he drew on that memory when he was writing about that so i think sort of It is sometimes those small moments rather than, you know, some big cataclysmic thing um, where that help you sort of perhaps articulate the, I don't know, the specificity of your addiction. Um, Yeah.
0: yeah. I was going to say one thing that we say in the room sometimes, or I say at least, is all bottoms look the same on the inside. Mm. And it really is an emotional place and not um, the outward trappings. Like a suicide attempt is pretty bad. But also, that's just what I had to go through to get there. Mm-hmm. Like, I know people that have hit bottom, just um, sitting in their dorm room, realizing they're they're never going to be happy if they keep going the way they're going. Right. Which yeah. you know, wow. Like, I wish that was my bottom.
2: But sure. <laughs> right, everybody's journey is different. Um,
0: and well, I would there's... just point out that the thing about Jack Torrance is, or <laughs> is that he has several bottoms. that's true (laughs) yeah there's also you know
2: breaking his kids arm and he
0: just I was gonna say that's what I thought of. he just keeps crashing through
2: yeah Yeah. and and that's why it's such a
0: powerful story though is because his outward bottoms right all this stuff that collects um, he just it it shows the power of the disease Mm -hmm. yeah
3: yeah, and there's this moment in Gerald's game, and I can't remember, and it's not about addiction, but it's about um, surviving trauma, and I can't remember if it's actually in the book. It might be in Flanagan's adaptation, but she says just because it's not the worst thing that's ever happened doesn't mean it wasn't bad and doesn't mean it can't hurt you, and that's kind of what I hold in my head because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times I when I first started going to meetings, I'm like, yeah, but I'm not a real alcoholic because I didn't do X, Y, Z, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and I said that once, and they were like, yeah, everybody says that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. What matters is how you is how you feel, you know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I wanna talk, um, I, I have this quote from King. It's a longer section i'm not going to read all of it but it was from his rolling stone interview he did some years back and he really opened up about um his addiction issues and he also did an on writing which we'll talk about in a moment but uh i'm just going to read these just so you kind of have a sense of where he was um he says i started drinking by age 18 and he says um i realized i had a problem around the time that maine became the first state in the nation to pass a returnable bottle and can law Uh, (laughs) you could no longer just toss the shit away you saved it turned it into a recycling center and he says nobody in the house drink but me and my wife would have a glass of wine and that was all so i went to the garage one night and the trash can was set aside for beer cans was full to the top it had been empty the week before i was drinking like a case of beer a night and i thought i'm an alcoholic that was probably 78 79 and i thought i've got to be really careful because if somebody says you're drinking too much you have to quit I won't be able to. And uh, then he talks a little bit about his writing process. He says that he, you know, didn't drink during the days, but uh, he would work at night and would drink through that. And um, and then also he was uh, started doing um, cocaine around 1978, He says, around the same time, I realized I was out of control with drinking. And um, he says, I thought I was in control, but in reality, I wasn't. And he says he was a heavy Coke user from 78 to 86. Um, And he says, Coke was different from booze. Booze, I could wait and I didn't drink or anything, but I used Coke all the time. And, uh, and then they ask about, you know, they say you had three kids at the time, must have been very stressful to keep this huge secret while balancing your responsibilities. And he just says, I don't remember that whole time was really hazy to me. I just didn't use it around people. And I wasn't a social drinker. I used to say that I didn't want to go to bars because they were full of assholes like me. Um, and then he, uh, I'll just read this section here. The interviewer says, I'm trying to comprehend how you live this whole secret life of a drug addict for eight years, all the while churning out bestsellers and being a family man. And he says, well, I can't comprehend it now either, but you do what you have to do. And when you're an addict, you have to use. So you just try to balance things out as best as you can. But little by little, the family life started to show cracks. I was usually pretty good about it. I was able to get up and make the kids breakfast and get them off to school. And I was strong. I had a lot of energy. I would have killed myself otherwise. But the books start to show it after a while. Misery is a book about cocaine. And Wilkes is cocaine she was my number one fan uh and they asked did the quality of the writing go down and we've mentioned this on the pod before but yeah this is where the notorious quote where he says the tommy knockers is an awful book that was (laughs) the last one i wrote before i cleaned up my act and i've thought about it a lot lately and said to myself There's a really a good book in there underneath all the spurious energy that cocaine provides. And I ought to go back. Uh, He says there's probably a good 350 page novel in there. So that's sort of, (laughs) I think, a good overview of it. But he elaborates in on writing a bit and talks about that he also had an issue with, um, uh, you know, uh, self-medicating with things like Listerine and NyQuil, things that sort of just make you a little bit lightheaded if you you know consume too no, much. No, those of it. those have alcohol in them. Oh, do they have alcohol? Yeah. Oh <laughs> like, wow. Sorry, I actually never sorry. realized that. Sorry. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, see, I always thought it was like because I've taken NyQuil before and I've gotten like kind of high from it Um, Mm -hmm. you know uh, and I remember I had a very 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 brief period where I used to use NyQuil to go to sleep sometimes because I was having really bad trouble sleeping luckily I kicked that pretty quick so I understand but I guess I always thought it was just the chemicals bouncing around in my
0: well (laughs) NyQuil also has I think dex in it Mm. um, which or it can have dex in it which is a a recreational drug if you take too much of it Mm. Um, the kids call it robo tripping Because it's in Robitussin, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, But most cough suppressants have some kind of alcohol in them as well. Yeah. Eminem, m M &M relapsed on cough medicine. Oh, really? Really? Interesting. Well, I mean, he eventually went back to his drug of choice. But and like my (laughs) husband also
2: relapsed, starting on cough medicine. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. the gateway is yeah um jen you just revisited on writing a bit uh what 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 would you say you took from that in regards to his uh his uh, writings about you know addiction and sobriety and that
3: well a lot of what um he's writing about is he talks a lot about having his first drink which i i found really interesting um especially kind of growing up like we did not have alcohol in my house like that Mm -hmm. it was a rare occasion for my dad to have what he called a fire extinguisher you know so I just thought like this isn't this isn't something that's going to be part of my life drinking it's bad I'll never do it you know and um, he just talks about having his first drink on a class field trip and then like the memory of bouncing down the hallways being just wasted Mm -hmm. which is uh, I have several half remembered um, visions of that in my head um, and just saying, well, I, and he was saying, um, I, I've done it. I know what it's like. Won't do it again. And then talking about being drunk the next night. And it's just, um, it's, it's that sneaky, addictive nature. I think that he really kind of describes really well without really even saying that he's just kind of talking about his experiences and, um, then talking about, um, I don't know if he would call it an intervention, but when Tabitha kind of presented him with the trash can in his office, which you were talking about and saying, you know, you it was filled with like Coke vials and the Listerine cans. And he was talking about saying she had asked him if he was drinking the Listerine and he said, no, I'm drinking because he was drinking the other brand, you know, and just the way that you hide it, you know, mm, yeah. um, that confrontation of um, realizing how much you've actually drank is another, um, like, especially if you're at a bar, you know, you're not seeing the empties accumulate in your trash can. Right. Right. Um, so that was, I, I thought, I just, I found a lot of power in reading him just kind of tell his story. You Mm -hmm. know, he also talks about being drunk at his mother's deathbed.
1: Mm. Um,
3: and just kind of the way that he was functioning on it. And it's interesting to read those two quotes because I think he's talking about the same time period in his life. Um, and I was very f- high functioning when I was drinking a lot, although those cracks do show. And now I, I think back and I think how, was I functioning as well as I thought I was, you know, I wonder, like, I was sick a lot, sick a lot, you know, mm-hmm. I think we usually aren't yeah. to be honest. Um,
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Some of the stuff that resonated for me in in the quotes you read includes that part about how did I do it? How did you do it? Mm -hmm. Um, And you just you have to. So you do. But Mm -hmm. I remember one of the things that happened for me when I finally went like completely off of everything, because towards the end, I wasn't I wasn't (laughs) I wasn't wasn't ever really sober. I kept on thinking maybe I was sober, but I was taking Xanax and I Mm -hmm. was
1: um,
0: which I my doctor gave me. So you know, of course I can use it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was drinking bitters with stuff.
1: Mm, Um,
0: and bitters is almost pure alcohol. And I was like, but (laughs) I just convinced myself if I have like a shot of bitters, it's somehow not. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Anyway. So when I finally got to treatment and I was really off everything, I was like, Oh wow. This is what it's like to not like live in pain. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: This is what it's like to not have to lift the weight of a hangover and withdrawal every morning yeah mm-hmm. um because that's what happens when you become a kind of late stage alcoholic is you can no longer function without some kind of alcohol in your system which is why i was drinking bitters and like sometimes i think i convinced myself that campari wasn't really alcoholic <laughs> stuff that tastes bad
1: yeah
0: mm-hmm. um but you know my hands would shake and i remember actually i i was reporting trip on i was on a reporting trip uh covering the mccain campaign mm-hmm. and um whatever overslept so couldn't get a drink in me before i got on the bus and i was interviewing mccain and my hands were shaking so hard i couldn't write
1: wow wow. and
0: he saw he was like huh rough night huh and i was like fuck like yeah and i wound up having to switch to in my career having to switch to taking notes on a computer yeah Mm. like i could no longer take notes by i couldn't trust myself to take notes by hand um and i forgot where i was going oh i wanted to say he relapsed we should Probably not leave that part out. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, after his big car accident, mm. or when he was hit by a car um, and put on painkillers, he abused those painkillers. And I think that's how we got Dreamcatcher.
2: Yeah, he talked about that. In, um, <laughs> let me see if I wrote that one down. Which is
0: another one that I kind of like for some weird reason. Maybe I just knew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was
2: on Oxy, um, you know, which is famously overprescribed by, uh, or you know, was. I don't know if it still is, but it's. Oh no, uh, it still is. Yeah, I figured. Like, I have
0: friends who I have. I mean, any. I have. There's, you know, opiate addiction is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm. so he he had an uh Oxycontin, uh issue uh and he says he wrote most of um Dreamcatcher while he was, you know, in that state. So, but you know, he uh kicked that one as well. So. Yeah. Um so we have a series of texts here. We're going to kind of discuss um the books sort of through three different lenses: uh, addiction, uh getting clean, and recovery. And um yeah, we have several different uh, books here that we're going to touch on, uh, some that I think are obvious to people who have read King and some that maybe aren't that where it's sort of an underlying, perhaps not as uh, explicit um, theme. But yeah, I guess, obviously, I think the best place to start is The Shining. Um, Anna, you had mentioned that this book, you know, really hit a lot of bells for you. So what was your experience with The Shining and the way that it portrayed addiction?
0: So again, much like Jen, I think I probably some part of me recognized myself and his writing way early on because even Christine you can say has a certain uh-huh. addiction theme to it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the car takes over like yeah. his compulsion takes over a lot of King mm-hmm. is about compulsion yeah um, and Yay. about that being a need and and that being the thing that drives people to do evil right um, so but I, and I think I might have like read somewhere that the shining was about alcoholism. But when I read it in early, early, early recovery, the scene what I'm content warning, I might get teary every once in a while. (laughs) The scene that really hit me and undid me was when Jack goes into the hotel bar and the bottles appear. Mm. And because that is like the alcoholics worst fucking nightmare to, to do everything you could to like to, to and this is without actually being in recovery I should say cuz Jack doesn't he gets he gets sober but he white knuckles it right he doesn't, yeah. actually, mm-hmm. he doesn't actually he doesn't actually get in recovery so he's gone to the ends of the earth and thinking that that's going to be what keeps him clean right mm-hmm. but your disease shows up anyway yeah mm-hmm. and i just that actually kind of i'm getting goosebumps like right now Mm-hmm. that is a terrifying idea. Yeah. And it's true. And that's where I was at my bottom was that I thought I had tried. I usually tell people like I had tried options A through Z and that's how I got to trying to end my life is because mm-hmm. I tried everything I thought I knew how to do. And my mm-hmm. disease still showed up. Um, And, and I've reread The Shining probably, pff, I mean, countless times since then. And it's still... Horrifying. That scene is still horrifying. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he wrote it without recognizing that he was writing about alcoholism is just amazing because mm-hmm. his portrayal of Jack is like from the ego to the helplessness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and to the promise that the hotel makes to him
1: mm-hmm.
0: that you're gonna, you're I'm gonna make you special. Yeah. I'm gonna make you feel good. I'm going to give you the things that you've dreamed of and it's not going to take any work. It's, mm-hmm. going, to be, it's going to be just my gift to you. And all you have to do is this little thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You just have to lose everything else,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know. You have to do these terrible things. And I think that's the deal that alcoholics and addicts make, right, is they believe the promise their addiction makes them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's how they destroy the things that they love in their life.
3: Yeah, because reality is scary a lot Mm -hmm. of times, especially Mm -hmm. if you are dealing with addiction. And I think um, I was re-listening to this just for this episode. And one of the things that I kept thinking was the hotel is addiction for Mm -hmm. him. And he's like when they say Jack is with the hotel, that was him. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say giving in because that feels like a vilifying thing. But it's just sometimes it's just it's really hard to think through all of the things that are in your head sometimes. And that's what, like I'm going through this thing in therapy and we're also selling our house. And the realtor just brought over a little kit and it had, she's like, and it's alcohol for your tummy and for your hands. And, And it was just a totally, you know, um, benign thing but you know me you know, I was like oh there's alcohol and I am not like I'm very much a binge drinker like if I stop or if I start drinking I'm going to drink everything I can find mm-hmm. but I'm not I am not like constantly tempted you know Um, but I'm also dealing with this thing in therapy and I was like gosh I remember when this was so much easier and it was when I was drunk you know it was mm-hmm. like just thinking through like the thought processes and some of the therapy stuff I'm talking about it's just fucking hard but it was easier if I didn't have to think about it. Or if I could tell myself it's somebody else's fault, which is what Jack does throughout the book. The self-pity is
0: so perfect.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And it just like the hotel allows him to believe that, which is what drinking does because it like takes away that reasoning part, you know? Um, And my, I think my experience with The Shining, I see myself in it a little bit, but I really see my dad and I really see my first husband um, a lot more so I, I tend to identify a lot with Wendy in that book. Um, and I my dad was not an alcoholic. I think he, I don't know. I, I'm not going to speak to his condition now, but he I did not grow up with him drinking all the time. Um, but he was just constantly enraged about things. Like a lot of the anger that Jack has. Mm-hmm. My dad was like that. I think he's a narcissist. I think Jack is too. Um, and I think there's a moment in the book, The Shining, that um, where they're talking to the doctor and- That is such a powerful scene for me because Jack says, um, yeah, and I had a drinking problem and I broke Danny's arm and I did these things and he says it out loud. And in Kubrick's version, and I'm not going to shit on that movie, I've got a lot of thoughts about it, but in Kubrick's movie, it's just Wendy and she's the one who says all of this and she is apologizing for Jack and Jack doesn't have to be there in that moment. And that has always just enraged me. So (laughs) this, this scene in the book is so like, it means so much to me to see. A authority figure admit that he was wrong in a way that would have meant something in my life that I never got to see. And then mm-hmm. I think it also helped me kind of understand that my dad is a human being, you mm-hmm. know, like, I think the book is it really humanizes Jack. And though he is the villain and he does a lot of terrible things, he is also, you see where he's coming from and you see why, you know, I, I
0: in a way, like, like, yes, the hotel is the disease of addiction. And it, in a way, like it's, it's a, perfect metaphor for sometimes the way that some people in recovery talk about it, especially in in Minnesota model treatment, which is that it's the disease is personified as something else. Like yeah. you're, you're encouraged to think of the disease as the thing that's actually doing the bad stuff. And that's mm-hmm. helpful for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and you do wind up, it's not a way of not taking responsibility. You do eventually, you do, you come to take responsibility for the things you did, but that's sort of the idea is that you can, Um, have it be something you did and you take responsibility for, but also understand that you did it in the grip of a relentless and chronic and um, uncurable, you know, power Mm -hmm. that you have to have help to fight. That if you're just trying to fight this monster on your own, yeah, you're going to do what it says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You will. Everyone will. If you Mm -hmm. could make a person an addict... There is no one who has a moral, you know, system strong enough to resist what that disease wants from you. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, which, I mean, I, I think we want to talk, I want to talk about Kujo for just a little bit. Um, yeah, definitely. Although I know that is a sensitive one, but. Um, <laughs> well, it like, is because
2: think- <laughs> Anna and I like dogs so much. I think yeah. that that factors And I do. And I,
3: and I will say, like, Gen- I started famous
2: Jen, to... you are a famous dog hater. Is that true?
3: <laughs> oh, no. I love dogs. I love dogs. I don't currently have one. And I will say, I started listening to Cujo, and then I stopped when they got in the car. Yeah. And they got... like Because I could not read any section with Tad in it without crying. Yeah, um, that's tough. But the but there's also like in The Shining, there's this concept of him wearing a mask, you know, and mm-hmm. him the hotel like he becomes the false face, I think is what Danny said. And that's something that I kind of encountered with my first husband, you know, and I think a lot of times that's um, an alcoholic like was when I first met my husband, my first husband, um, he was living in a sober living facility and he had just been in rehab for, I think. I think longer. I think he was there for a couple of months, but I always told myself I never would have started dating him if he wasn't, if he was still drinking and, Mm -hmm. you know, he moved out and into my place and started drinking within a month or two, I think. Um, and, um, but he would get like, he would just kind of become this other person that I didn't recognize, although I started to recognize that other person. Um, and so reading about Jack, and it's funny, we went on a vacation, and we were driving, and I picked up the Shining audiobook, and we were both listening to it together in the car. And I was like, hmm. Yeah. And kind of looking over at him, but he just, he was not in a place where... He was going to hear that or he was going to shove it down so that he wouldn't have to. But but then I do remember because he was also physically abusive. And I remember there was one time when an incident happened and he had not been drinking. And I was thinking, OK, so there's that's that white knuckle kind of thing. Like there's more here. It's not always the alcohol that makes you do it. It's I think well, the Jack alcohol... beats up the student. So right, exactly. After he's clean. um, Yeah, it's like he. Yeah. And and that's something too because I did not go through a like quote unquote recovery. I've kind of um eked my way through, I think, because I stopped drinking when I got pregnant and so mm-hmm. that was my Okay, well, I'm going to Jen, I'm going to Come on.
0: Like a recovery is a recovery, and I'm not going to let you sell yourself. Short That's down
3: true. That. And thank you, because I do have a tendency to do that and say, Yeah, but not really for me. Really? Um, you really, really are in recovery. <laughs> That's true. I really am in recovery, <laughs> and it can look different for everybody. Thank you. Um, but I. The there's the he talks about the image of looking around the corner and seeing a monster, you know, Mm -hmm. and backing away before the monster gets you. And that's something that I kind of look at my uh, my life and think I think I saw a monster and I because I was I loved cocaine. I did that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I never got addicted to it because I think I could see that monster around the corner. And I was like, okay, I've got to stop this. And I was really lucky that I was able to see that before it became something that just took over my life because I, I remember I would do it and I was like oh God I could just so see myself like lying on a floor like just need you know mm-hmm. um but what you what you find Anna said the monster follows you you know. And well, it's
2: funny you say that. It reminded me because we talked about, you know, these themes a bit in desperation and it made me think of, oh shit, the mummy's after us, you know, like yeah. when you, yeah. yeah, it walks
3: slow, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. but it's going to find you, you know, and I have now, like I've gone to meetings in sections of my life and I've gone to therapy and that's a lot of what my recovery is right now is in personal therapy, but, um, which, it, which is recovery. So thank you Anna, because, <laughs> 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 um, but the, okay, so I, want to talk about personifying the monster and I'm going to talk about Cujo because that's one of the ones that I really yeah, do it. connect with. Um, and, and because that's, I and think... that's a
2: book that for listeners who don't know, King famously says he doesn't even really even remember writing it because he uh, yeah. was uh, was pretty messed up while he was working on it. Yeah.
3: And so one of the things that I think is interesting i don't know if that's the word i want to use about drinking for me is a lot of the times it took the cover off of my emotions and like everything that i was repressing it brought up to the surface and like if i was mad at you and i was just kind of getting over it like if i was drunk i was going to scream at you you know and Mm -hmm. that's i think what i see cujo being is like there i feel like there's a lot of shame in that book and um it's it's a really hard book to read for that reason because i feel like there's there's self-loathing. There's like, I think he sees himself as Cujo and I think his alcoholism is personified as this rabid monster that he can't control that is trapping a mother and her children. And then I think, I wonder if this was him trying to kind of process the guilt that he had about what it was like to live in a house with him when he was um, in his addiction. I think there's also a section where he talks about Donna because Donna cheats on her husband, and she's talking about this, like, unnamed fear of just kind of getting older, as I think how she explains it, but it's just, like, this fear of life, mm-hmm. you know, that drives her to do this self-destructive thing, and I think that's that's a lot of why I drank sometimes. It's just, what what else am I going to do? The rest of it is scary, you know, which sounds probably easy, but... I don't know, it can weigh really heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a section that I found at the very end, and this is what always sticks out to me. And he's talking about Cujo, and it's like on the last page. And he says, shortly following those mortal events in the cam- Camber dooryard I'm going to skip the next sentence, um, talking about Cujo. <laughs> It would perhaps not be amiss to point out that he had always tried to be a good dog. He had tried to do all the things his man and his woman, and most of all, his boy had asked or expected him. He would have died for them if it had been required. He had never wanted to kill anybody. He had been struck by something, possibly destiny or fate, or only a degenerative nerve disease called rabies. Free will was not a factor. And I find that, like, as he writing that, not remembering that he wrote it, I think that's like his subconscious really saying, I promise I'm a nice person. I I promise. I don't mean to do this. I just, I need help. I can't control it. Again, it's the grip
0: of the disease. It is. And Mm -hmm. we do things in our addiction that we would never do sober. "in vino veritas is like my least fucking favorite phrase. Like, there is no truth in addiction. Mm -hmm. There really isn't. And people who think that, you know, gosh, I... You know, I wish I could put him inside my head,
2: which is again <laughs> yeah.
0: the thing that King does so well, and why I think we resonate with him is that he gets the interior of alcoholism and addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 desperation and the self pity and the helplessness, and which which from the outside, and this is Jack again, from the outside can look like cruelty, can look like um, abuse, um, but really what's happening inside. And for men, especially, I think they're not always aware of the self pity and and mm-hmm. and helplessness, and it comes out as abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's clear for Jack that that's what's happening for him is that he's just incredibly insecure, mm-hmm. you know, and desperate. Mm-hmm. He wants to help his family, you know, and he hates himself that he can't. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. Cujo, to me has always seemed like a very angry book. I have read it. Um I just mm-hmm. haven't revisited it. But um but yeah, I do think that like even beyond like I just think a lot of, who's the the guy who cheats on or like the the
3: Kemp, Steve Kemp? I yeah. mean the the other the other man.
2: The other man. I res- I remember <laughs> the way that he becomes possessed when he goes to the house um at the end and kind of destroys their house. That scene to me, I've only read the book once, and that scene still haunts me because it's like he becomes rabid in that scene as well. And mm-hmm. it just, it's the anger I think that really resonates for me and the general, and, yeah. and, um, and I think that you know when you do consider because you wrote in our notes, Jen, you know the sort of like uh, this subconsciousness and mm-hmm. the shame that you mention, and there is shame, I think, in Steve's character as well. Um, and that you wrote losing control. I think that there's a lot of loss of control in that book, and that mm-hmm. to me is is presented in such a way that is just really disturbing. And um, and it's something that you know when I've talked to my friends in recovery, there is that that sense of watching someone you know uh or well there's it's when other people tell you about how they watched you lose control you know mm-hmm. and uh there's a documentary out called bloody nose empty pockets that's really really good it's it's basically uh follows um various denizens of a bar on its last day of operation and it's in you know it's sort of a celebration but then there's this moment where this character who very early in the movie is very relaxed and normal and he's talking to everybody and then just near the end of the movie the switch gets flipped and he starts to lash out and pick fights with people and he is a completely different person and it's such like a terrifying sort of uh, manifestation of of how that can happen, you know, how alcohol Mm -hmm. can, can make that happen for certain people and, um, and how sometimes it can be like a a switch getting flipped. And I think that Cujo for me, at least the scenes that I remember, and then obviously the idea of Cujo himself and what you read, Jen, uh, that resonates with me a lot. So,
3: yeah. Well, one of the first things that I talked about when I started going to therapy is she gave me the sheet and it was emotions and it had the oh, is it the, the
0: opposite one
3: yeah yeah yeah. i think so it's like the pure emotion and then there's the the uh, i think there's probably a couple of versions of it but there's like the the healthy manifestation of this emotion and then there's the unhealthy on the side yeah. and fear is at the top and she said lots of times fear no anger sorry anger is at the top and she said anger covers for a lot of the other ones because anger is action oriented and when mm-hmm. you are mad or when you're afraid, it feels good to do something with that. And so you turn it into fear. And I I think I kick up a lot of my emotions from fear. And I think we all have that. We all have these emotions that just feel so powerful. We don't know what to do with them. And some of us are really good at processing that and getting it out. Some of us do it through writing. Some of us do it through therapy and some of us stuff it down and the alcohol allows us to get it out or it did for me for a long time. Um, of course, you reach a point where the alcohol starts to cause its own problems and that mm-hmm. it's just kind of like feeding the beast, you know. But I just remember um, growing up with my dad, who is a narcissist, like it felt so good to not be to not have to control everything to just let myself give in to that loss of control, you know, like, cause I was always so afraid of doing something wrong or doing something stupid. And then when I was drunk, I didn't know, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would wake up the next morning and have to like go through the Rolodex of my brain of like, who did I, who did I piss off? Who did I embarrass myself with? You know? And, and yeah. And now I, now that I'm not drinking anymore, I feel like I'm making decisions based in reality and mm-hmm. not based in my drunk think anymore, and it's just, it's yeah, that, nice. And all, sorry.
0: I was gonna say that the Danny in and Doctor Sleep, um, his morning after thoughts are really, yeah. really, you know, identify yeah. with that.
3: Um, and yeah, I think that those are two, probably the two biggest ones I would like to mention. In Early in his career, we talked about misery. Misery is another one that I think really grabs me. Um, yeah. And I don't think I had really understood why until um, you were reading those quotes. It's like, it's it's the need and it's the feeling of being trapped. That it's like he's writing about addiction, but not actually writing about, not actually saying it out loud, which is just, well, I feel like,
2: you know. He, you're 100% right, but... He does like that's the thing is um, we talked about this a lot on our our book episode about it. But King does weave in the painkiller addiction Mm -hmm. because the way that Annie keeps him pacified is with these painkillers. And Mm -hmm. he realizes that that addiction um, within, you know, this this larger metaphor for addiction uh, is something he needs to fight through. So those themes are very clearly on his mind a lot. And uh, and yeah, and I do think that the various ways that um, that uh, addiction impacts him. Um, throughout that, and it's also interesting because you guys uh, noted about well, we talked I think before the pod started about um, Tommyknockers and and cocaine and this kind of concept of of uh, productivity, right? Like the mm-hmm. idea, and there's that in misery too, because he feels like the new misery book he's writing when he's in the throes of this addiction is great, and he's like enthralled by what he's writing, but he still mm-hmm. understands that he's in you know intense danger, and yeah. uh, and so it's interesting that he captures those those sort of, uh, nuances within that. But yeah, I think, um, I know that, yeah, in our, in our, I think that was when we first started to kind of seriously talk about the idea of recovery and addiction, um, in, on this podcast. I mean, I know we did with the shining, but, but with misery, I remember it was so we knew sort of, you know, he was at that point where, uh, sobriety was on the horizon and, um, and uh, yeah, and I think in Misery, it's so explicit that he knows he has a problem, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. and he's really working through that. Um, Ana, do you have any other thoughts on Misery?
0: Just that. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that he could write all this stuff about addiction and not know it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And now that I've now that I've said this thing about Christine even being about like powerlessness and obsession and something else kind of compelling, something else making a promise to you. Again, Mm -hmm. Christine is about being uh, this Mm -hmm. entity making a promise to you that you'll feel great.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You,
0: your life will be amazing. Mm -hmm. And all you, again, all you have to do all I'm asking, you know, cause that's what it feels like. That is so much what it feels like Mm
1: -hmm. is that, well, I
0: guess, you know, I mean, all I'm doing is, like, for me, like, moving around money from some bank accounts. I'm just, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's not not yeah. that bad. And it's so I can continue feeling great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or at some point, it's actually, and this is something I'm not sure if King kind of does as much as I've had it my experience, which is eventually it's not to feel great, it's to feel normal.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And, and I think he might mention that in on writing, but... Um, yeah, the promises that the entity makes sort of feel great.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, and, in Christine, we see that it works for a little bit. You know, Arnie does. Mm-hmm. Get oh, and it does. You know
0: yeah, <laughs> it always works. If it didn't work for a little bit, we wouldn't yeah. do it. That was like the big insight I had in treatment was like, and maybe I've told this story before in podcast, but do you want to tell it again? Which is that when they showed like. This is your brain on drugs slides. And one of them was this is a normal person's brain on cocaine. And then the next slide was this is an addict's brain on cocaine. And the normal person's brain, the amygdala, is like, eh, yay, you know, love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And then the addict's brain is like, woohoo. <laughs> <Like, laughs> it is just completely lit up. And yeah. the idea is that science tells us we love it more than other people. It's mm-hmm. like it if it it, it it an alcoholic takes a drink and it does something different to me. Yeah. Than it does mm-hmm. to someone who's normal. Right. And that to me was like, oh, so it's not my fault.
1: hmm You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Like, and also yeah. this is why other people can not drink like me. is because it yeah. doesn't make them feel so amazing.
3: There's a moment in on writing when he talks about not being able to understand somebody not finishing a drink, which is mm-hmm. something that I, I don't get. I'm like, it's there. I'm going to drink it all, um, which is another thing that I, I kind of have that relationship with food, too. And I think sometimes it's the feeling good is not having to feel pain from another mm-hmm. thing. Like, I think I probably have a little bit of workaholism in me, you know, and that's uh, maybe to hide myself from having to deal with some other things in my life if I can just focus on a lot of work. Um but, yeah, it always – and, and you know, if we're looking at a writer who is as prolific as Stephen King is and who writes as much as he is, I wonder if that's a factor for him, too, because um, of the, the compulsive need, you know?
0: Yeah. So, Jen, if we're sitting here taping, like, a multi-hour podcast on a Sunday morning, I think all of us might have a little bit <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think you're right
2: <laughs> I, never yeah, I mean that's yeah. literally what I'm working through in therapy right now is my unhealthy relationship to work so uh-huh. uh, yeah. I think the-, <laughs> but, uh, the answer
0: is in the question <laughs> it is
2: yes <laughs> I love I love Jen that you put Hugh Priest from Needful Things on this because oh yeah mm-hmm. uh, I talked about this on the episode a little bit but I find it one of the most insidious things that Leland Gaunt does in the in many okay. insidious things is that you know he takes this man who is, you know, the town drunk, who's a a total mess of a human being, but uh, somebody who's hit rock bottom to the point where he is like, I need to get clean and he talks about in the book maybe I'll go to a meeting and he starts to find hope in this it's one of my favorite sections of the book is this beautiful chapter Mm -hmm. with this guy who um, is really starting to consider the state of his life and the fact that he needs to turn around and he and he's just thinking about the first step which is just going to a meeting and then he walks by needful things you know and it's like and Gaunt really does represent like that drink that's waiting for him and tempting him and ushering him in and and a promise yeah the promise and Better.
0: that's a promise he makes to everyone that's the, that's yeah. another kind of the theme and you know this is you can really crack the code of king if you look at yeah if you look at it in terms of like the deals that people make in order to feel a certain way
2: right and Leland sort of you know what he offers Hugh specifically is this foxtail that reminds him of his glory days when he was you know a football star in high school and was partying with his friends all the time and he didn't have a drinking problem back then you know so it takes him back to this idea that it's like no like you can be that again like you can be cool and you can be uh, popular and you can drink all you want and you're not going to have a problem and you're young and healthy and all these other things. And, and it's so, it, I just remember finding it so cruel and insidious that he basically takes this guy who was on the perch of fixing himself and, uh, you know, throws him off the cliff and basically, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then obviously for those who have read the book know that it does not end well. um, Uh, For that character. Um, Let's move on to talking about getting clean. Um, And yeah, we've probably touched on some of this. But um, yeah, did you like you mentioned the intervention uh, in on writing? And that was, Mm -hmm. I think, a big moment for for King. So like, what did he say about that intervention in on writing?
3: Well, he said, um, Ta- and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have a physical copy of this book, so I'm remembering from listening this morning. But he was talking about um, Tabitha apparently gave him two weeks to decide. And with after those two weeks, I think she was going to leave probably with uh, the kids. And he talked about like being at the top of a burning building and a helicopter comes down and drops a ladder and you say give me two weeks to think about whether I want to get off of this burning building you know which I Mm -hmm. think is the kind of thing that I look back on and I think of course there's the answer but it's so hard to see that in the moment because it feels so good just to stay there you know and you can't see you don't let yourself see beyond that you're like no it feels good right now and the other the other side is terrifying you know. -hmm. And that's one of the things that I'm so grateful to King for is because I think reading books like Dr. Sleep, like that book kind of demystified a lot of things for me and it made it not so scary, you know? And it said, okay, he's going through this. I can do this.
2: You know. Yeah.
3: There's a a story that I
0: talk about sometimes in meetings, which is that not a story, but kind of an analogy, which is that so, you know, alcoholism addiction is disease. And um, but is a disease that you treat by going to meetings and doing some like, you know, therapy work and like a person with cancer, if you told them like here, we have a way for you to put your disease in remission and all you have to do is go to a couple of meetings a week, maybe talk to a shrink, you know, kind of put your life in order like that person would take that deal. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Alcohol, you can tell someone's an alcoholic because they're like, eh. <laughs> like, yeah. You're saying I can be unmiserable. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all I have to do is these couple of things. Well, I, I don't know. I really uh, I don't yeah. know if I want to give up this misery, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. it's comfortable. And because it, that promise is always still there too that promise that eventually maybe you'll get that good feeling back.
3: Mm-hmm. Um. So, Or you'll find the way to make it work You know like I'll yeah. find out This this like fictitious amount that I can Drink and still be a Good person is the way I yeah. think Of it you know and that's part of why I'm in, I put Quitters Inc. on the list too and I don't Think oh. we need to talk too much about this but Like he gets clean well maybe we do Because <laughs> he gets clean for Well first of all he's tricked into it kind of Like coerced and he's doing It so that his wife and son Aren't like tortured or hurt You know not because he wants to do it, you know, and I think it's interesting to see the trajectory of King writing about this over the course of his career. And I can start to see his understanding of the process that I've come to understand. And I don't want to say that in a way that like, I understand it better than anyone else. But it's just interesting to see his ideas change about this over time, you know, because I don't think King now would write Quitters, Inc. in the same way.
0: Oh, I don't think so either. I think that's a that's someone who's in the grip of addiction thinking what it means to quit.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know,
0: like thinking what the reasons are to quit yeah um do we want to talk about eddie dean yeah because yes. i you said I something that's
2: yeah you said something earlier anna that i found interesting which is that uh you almost had some some anger at how easy perhaps it was for eddie to get clean in the dark tower so specifically in the drawing of the three so he you just want to talk about he that? just
0: yeah. it just happens <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah it goes through withdrawal okay that's terrible and then it's like, woohoo, like he doesn't even mm-hmm. like think about it anymore. And I just remember, I like I said, I read the Dark Tower series when I was in early recovery. And you know, my boyfriend at the time was struggling with an opiate addiction. And I was just like, you motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is this is not what it's like. And I just eventually I think I just told myself, well, he's clearly not really an addict. Yeah. Like because and also I will say that that sort of works as a way to read him. Yeah, Um. because he doesn't think like an addict it feels like to me Mm -hmm. um yeah um and you can be physically another one thing we've learned in the opioid um you know epidemic is is it is possible for people to just become physically addicted to these things and they just need help tapering off and then kind of getting to getting to a place where they can function again Mm -hmm. um and but the idea that i I remember really puzzling about this (laughs) And one of the other ideas I had was like, well, maybe going into this, you know, alternate world, that's a spiritual experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And
0: that's what cures them. Because I do believe that a spiritual experience is one of the ways that we get to a place where we can stay sober. And I've seen people have a spiritual experience outside the 12-step programs that really works for them. Mm-hmm. Um uh a lot of people who become pretty serious christians um i do think have a genuine recovery a genuine and they wind up doing something that looks a lot like working an aa program Mm -hmm. Um, if you're a sincere committed person in that you know any religion really right because almost all religions ask you to do Mm self-examination they ask you to do good towards others they ask you to stay in contact with your higher power um and and also aa started out of the oxford group which was a explicitly christian program right so that's what i told myself about eddie but like the fact that he just sort of it just happens is like i don't know i it made me i was like what are you doing steve yeah. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. well it like, feels why, why is this yeah. here well it feels like why is it yeah why is
0: the, yeah, like- the heroin here
1: <laughs> yeah
2: Well, it's sort of just like a narrative trick, right? And it's narratively expedient for him to uh, get clean because the story needs to keep going and he can't be dealing with that when the story's going. And so I guess, like, you know, he did write that while he was still an addict. And so I think that there wasn't perhaps that identification with what it means to get clean. So I... uh, You know what I'm also going
0: to say is that's before he was on Oxy, right?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, Oxy came in the, like, what, late 90s. Right, and so...
0: I do think that someone who's using, especially if you you don't have an opioid experience, number uh-huh. one, I think that he was being a little bit lazy and using heroin to signify desperation and a certain mm-hmm. like way of living. Mm. Um, which he does a, a a little bit in other books too, which I'm just sensitive to because all kinds of people. To heroin Sure Mm -hmm. Um, And he uses it Just to symbolize Really bad addiction Mm -hmm. Yeah You know Mm -hmm. Um, Well it's always been Portrayed
2: that way Like when I was a kid I Everybody Like I was always told that Because I loved Kurt Cobain when I was a kid And everybody was just like Well he used heroin You know I was like Shamed because of that Mm -hmm. You know
0: Yeah Mm -hmm. heroin is That's not just a drug That's like a moral failing Right Exactly Um, And Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and so that's what I think Like the heroin is doing In that story It's like he was a bad person
1: Mm -hmm. See Yeah Mm-hmm. And, and now he did heroin
0: not. and he was desperate and now he's not a bad person anymore.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah.
3: And there's a section in, I think he, I don't know if he intentionally addresses this in Revival, but there's a section in Revival where a character, and I know we haven't covered this, so I'm not going to spoil it, but a character gets clean um, through the power of magic lightning. Really. And it's, it's sound, it makes a lot more sense in the book. I promise. <laughs> um, but but um, there's, I think this is written around the time of Dr. Sleep, I think, but there's an element of the story is that yes, he got clean. Like it removed the need. There's almost like a wish fulfillment of, I wish this need was just gone. Mm-hmm. And that is what recovery is. And that's not quite what it is. It's just, you learn to manage it. Um, but then it's also it's still lurking it's not really gone and I think that is like I see the growth in his understanding of this over like those two characters you know yeah
2: yeah that's interesting uh Jen you wrote down lunch at the Gotham Cafe I'm not familiar with this one
3: that's a story in everything's eventual and I only I don't think we need to talk about this one too much but there is a big um smoking component in um everything's eventual I actually got an audio collection called blood and smoke which had five stories from everything's eventual about either quitting smoking or smoking being an element like in 1408 a cigarette is a key element and I think this was a time when King was uh, maybe trying to quit smoking himself and he he was a two
2: pack a day guy yeah
3: yeah. And I know I remember when my first husband went to rehab, they said, yeah, you can have all the cigarettes you want because he was like, they got to give you something. You have to do something. Yeah. You know, um, And so I just wonder if that is one of the stages. But he also talks about anhedonia, which is I think my understanding of it is um, in the early stages of him getting off cigarettes. I'm talking about the character in the story. He is has this like unreality and this like inability to kind of engage with life the way he feels like everybody else is engaging with it. It's like, it feels like it's not real, you know, which mm. I just think is interesting, you
2: know? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, why don't we pivot over and talk about, because I think a lot of these discussions about getting clean are sort of natural segues into discussing recovery. Um, yeah. And, um, and I, yeah, why I think Dr. Sleep is probably a good place to start because it's very explicit in that book. And, um, and is, I think for me personally, the most compelling part of that book um i think a lot of people agree that sort of those first 100 some pages with danny uh you know hitting rock bottom uh getting into recovery building a new life is is uh is sort of the real heart of the book in a lot of ways before we get to the you know the the uh smoke sex vampires um but yeah (laughs) um dr sleep what what are like what is your experience with that book and and what do you think it says about recovery
0: i mean it's about you know Danny's story is the best part of that book. Yeah. Like I think you could have written he could have written a really good book without the Sexy smoke monster <laughs> Evil RVers yeah. um, I was like listening to the Audiobook of it the other day and like he Really must have done research on RVs because he Does these loving descriptions of them. <laughs> like, Whenever right. he talks about their kind of Entourage
3: like, I gotta see it's, these r- RVs Yeah, <laughs> they, sound,
0: <laughs> they sound great You know right. um, this sounds like a great lifestyle Right uh, and, and I it's very close to my heart Because um uh, the portrayal of 12-step in popular culture is almost always wrong. Yeah. Like even, even when it's done by people who kind of know or, or are in 12-step programs, I think because it's a little bit hard to explain, because there's stuff in it that's you have to explain, it doesn't sound obvious, you have to spend some time on it. Um and like meetings are often portrayed as just people go and like share about their terrible problems. <laughs> like mm-hmm. and that's not what meetings are like. We'll talk about meetings in a little bit. Um and uh they talk about oh it's sort of portrayed you you talk about drinking at a meeting Mm -hmm. you know like that's what you do at a 12-step meeting is you talk about drinking and that's Mm -hmm. jen will back me up like that is not what you really talk about no um in fact you're encouraged not to talk about it Mm -hmm. uh and so Danny, Danny getting a sponsor. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I got into AA, I was like, "What the fuck is sponsorship?" I've never. I thought I knew what a twelve-step program was. The first step is you admit to have a problem. Okay, number one, that's not the first step, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then number two, like when I worked again, like you don't do this by yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know Jen is sort of doesn't necessarily do like your. Your recovery looks different than mine. There's all yes. kinds, but like, <laughs> but I'm like a AA nerd, Um and I do step work. It's called, and I'd never seen step work portrayed in fiction mm-hmm. ever. And to see also him do a fourth step inventory, which is going to sound like gib- all of this is going to sound like gibberish to a normal person, Um, because people don't bother going into the details. So twelve step mm-hmm. inventory, you know, you you look at all, you make a list of everybody. Um, you've re- ever uh, resented, which can be a very long list for alcoholics. <laughs> um, you make a list of what's called sex harms, um, which is like, you know, when you've done harm to someone in the context of a romantic relationship or a sexual relationship, you make mm-hmm. a list of fears. And then in fifth step, you share all that with somebody. And that's actually the part where Danny gets stuck is when you have to tell, um, you are honest with yourself, another person and God about the harms that you've done. And this is such a common thing in 12-step programs, which is people are like, well, I'm being honest with myself Mm -hmm. about what I did. Cool. And yeah, I told told God, you know, I don't think I can tell another person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can do that. And the thing is that the freedom from the relief comes when you do it with another person Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's hard and it's weird like that they're so specific about it that the people who came up with the 12 steps are so specific about it but it really it makes a difference yeah
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it does when you articulate to someone else the worst thing you've ever done and i swear to god every fucking time someone's like i've done worse there is Mm -hmm. i have literally never ever ever heard a story where the person who hears that goes, oh, yeah, man, wow. <laughs> <laughs> mm. You are fucked up, mm-hmm. you know? And that, in some ways, was kind of a problem for me in reading Danny's story, is that he, that wasn't that bad.
2: <laughs> like, yeah.
0: <laughs> I kept on thinking, like, yeah, you, you know, you're the kid you almost got into some cocaine, but you saved it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, like, why are you, and that is a, and I think, in a way, like, I wish, he does eventually kind of get there. Yeah. Right? Um, but that was almost a problem for me reading it, is like, come on, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, there's so much worse you could have done. Yeah. Um, your, your dad, for instance, like, look at <laughs> – you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I, just seeing, like, the intricacies of 12-step work being portrayed. And, oh, my God, he reads a big book.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: You know, I remember, again, walking into the rooms of AA. I was like, what the – you know, bi- you. What is this? I thought the big book was a Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not.
2: So. Um, anyway. I read a quote where he's talking about AA, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. He says, there's a thing in AA, something they read in a lot of meetings, the promises. Most of these promises have come true in my life. We'll come to know a new freedom and new happiness. That's true. But it also says in there, we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. And I have no wish to shut the door on the past. I have been pretty upfront about my past. But do I regret? I do. I do. I regret the necessity. And he said that I believe in rolling stone.
0: Hmm. Um I almost want to read this whole section because that yeah the promises were um yeah okay I'm going to read some of it. Yeah. Um <laughs> it. uh so if we we're painstaking about this phase of our development we this is in the big book of alcoholics anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah it's read at a lot of meetings. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter, fa- far ha- uh, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We'll intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I remember hearing that at a meeting and being like, "Okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> if you can tell me if that, all right, I'll I'll make that deal." Right? <laughs>
1: like,
0: yeah. <laughs> like I, I I was like I was stunned to hear these people who wrote a book in the 1930s who were rich white dudes list Mm -hmm. out all the things that I struggled with. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and to, to say that those are the specific things we can help you with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is,
3: you know, like changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. And there's part of me that hears that. And I think, yeah, but not for me. Not really. That works for other people. Yeah. Yeah. But not for me. And I think in reading, Dr. Sleep like you see it work for Danny and I think especially coming from like a background that's so similar to his I mean I didn't go to a hotel with my family but like I (laughs) had that same father relationship and it's like maybe if it works for him maybe it'll work for me you know and I remember another part that struck me when I was reading that is there's a moment where he's driving and he passes a bar and Mm -hmm. he wants to pull into the bar and he pulls over and he calls a sponsor instead and he just calls a friend he calls another person in the program that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he Which just is says, even better actually. <laughs> it is <laughs> because it's not like, because it, yeah, I remember like the first meeting I went to and everybody passed around their phone numbers and they gave them to me and I was like, okay, probably never going to use this, but I have it, you know? Um, and I have, um, but he just calls and he says, I'm tempted and that's it. And it's just getting those and words the person out. And that's exactly. actually also the other thing that's great. And then it just takes the piss out of the whole situation. It's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm moving on, you know? And that was just such a, like, that's empowering for somebody who's afraid to do that, you know? And the scene, my favorite scene in this book, and I always cry, is the scene when he does talk about his rock-bottom moment. And it's not so much what he says, but it's just that this entire book, he has been terrified of that moment, you know? And then he says it, and then he's talking about people, like, checking their watches, and, like, yeah, nobody cares, you know? And I just, I was reading that, and I was thinking about, like, a couple of things that I just like live in fear of people finding out, you know, and that when you say them and you say them to trusted people first, you know, people in the rooms or to I've said a lot of them to therapists, you know, mm-hmm. Um, it's like it gets easier. You know, like I talk about a lot of like hard stuff on podcasts because I have been talking about it and because every like the first time I like to cried for 10 minutes in therapy and I was like, OK, we, we got to. I got to back out. But now I can talk about it and I don't cry, you know, and it just yeah. gets easier and it takes the the emotional charge away, you know, and I will that, add. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I
0: do love that Danny calls another person in the program because yeah, like he could have called his sponsor and that's one thing you can do. But calling another person in the program is actually sometimes kind of harder. Mm-hmm. And also you, it, it, it the, he laughs at him. Like that's the that's what the other person does. It's like, oh I, don't know, I guess your disease is up to you know it's shit right. again. And that is it takes the piss out of it and you're like, Oh, right, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Like mm-hmm. I, of course I'm gonna want to go into a bar every once in a while. Because, like you said, Jen, a really important thing about recovery that a lot of people don't understand is that the desire to drink never fully goes away. Mm-hmm. And I'm an alcoholic. Like, I am going to have a thought about drinking every once in a while. That's the way my brain is broken. Mm-hmm. The different thing is that now I can be like, oh, there it is. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. there's my disease, mm-hmm. and what am I going to do about it? Yeah, yeah and you I know? have
3: tools. I know what I can do, you know? Yeah. And the other thing I
0: wanted to add for people that don't maybe know a ton about recovery is that the sharing your um, – you know, uh, harms with, uh, yourself, got another person. The idea is not that you are able to share them with anyone. Like you can get the relief that the program promises from just sharing it with like one other person.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it is not about, I just want to not scare people.
3: Yeah. Yeah. but it's not about who hears it. It's a, the process of you saying it. You yeah. Know?
0: And like, cause there's stuff that I've said to, you know, in my case was a, a counselor in treatment that I don't plan on ever saying again, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the relief I got from just saying it and having the other person go, eh. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's such a, it's so amazing. And that's maybe why I got a little frustrated in doctor sleep with Danny obsessing about his, this moment is because I'm like, oh, Steve, you're like doing this for the rubes. You're like making (laughs) them, you're, you're trying, you're trying to get the rubes to think that this is this deep, dark, terrible thing. And you, you know, it's not you. Stephen King in recovery Know that the end of this story is going to be it's not a big deal, yeah. But you're just trying to get all those normies to be like, Oh, yeah, I understand why he'd never want to share that, right? You know,
3: right, yeah, because yeah, yeah, and that's half the stories are like that, you know. It's like, Why mm-hmm. was I so afraid of this? Because I've told people and they're like, Yeah, me too, you
2: know, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting how King he's very interested in the long game of recovery, uh, yeah. and mm-hmm. and it's interesting because I don't know, I've one thing that I remembered is we talked about this on our episode, but uh, Anna, have you read the Library Policeman? Um, in maybe. yeah, in Four Past Midnight. It's I mean, Four Past Midnight is one of like our least favorite. <laughs> yeah, you
0: have that running joke about it, so I'm kind of like, oh well, maybe I'll leave it off my. <laughs> yeah, tell it well, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. none of them are that great, but uh, honestly, I think my favorite of them is the Library Policeman. But I think part of that has to do with I had a very strong experience with it as a child, uh, but uh, that I talk about in the episode but this is a book that he one of the first things he wrote when he was sober and it does have a character who is in recovery and near the and I I think that he's still figuring out how to write about it. Um, uh, but it is interesting because it's very explicit the way he deals with it. And the book is really about this, you know, essentially, like you'd guess, sort of evil librarian creature monster thing and uh, named Ardelia Lots. And uh, near the end of the book, they sort of defeat her in these very strange Byzantine ways. And uh, But then there's this sort of code of this like, epilogue sort of where... Um, one of the the character who is in recovery um is basically like, We defeated her, but she's still with me. And um and so I'll read this section here. Uh Sam says, How have you been, Sarah? She looked at him tiredly. Not so well, Sam, not so well at all. I can't sleep, can't eat. My mind seems full of the most horrible thoughts. They don't feel like my thoughts at all, and I want to drink. That's the worst of it. I want to drink and drink and drink. The meetings don't help. For the first time in my life, the meetings don't help. She closed her eyes and began to cry. The sound was strengthless and dreadfully lost. No, he agreed softly. They wouldn't. They can't. And I imagine she'd like it if you started drinking again. She's waiting, but that doesn't mean she isn't hungry. She opened her eyes and looked at him. What? Sam, what are you talking about? Persistence, I think, he said. The persistence of evil how it waits, how it can be so cunning and so baffling and so powerful. Um, and so that's, yeah, Anna, what what's your reaction to that?
0: He's quoting the big book. Oh, is he really? Oh, wow. You don't know that. Yeah, yeah, cunning, baffling, and powerful. That is fucking the exact phrase that is used in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to describe addiction, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Mm. Oh, wow. I, I, when you said cunning and baffling, and I was going to go, is and he going to add
1: powerful?
0: powerful? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah he must have been new he must have been new to the rooms yeah and maybe not completely buying it sure you know yep like maybe being like i don't i mean you're describing because that's actually that is a phase that i think a lot of us go through is at first we're like well you're definitely describing my problem Mm -hmm. you have (laughs) definitely described the thing that i have lived through and that gets you far yeah actually to just be with people who understand the thing yeah but then you're kind of like You know and that's also that's has sort of step one and two um like uh the the step that really makes a difference is came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity Mm -hmm. wait jen that's step two right yes that's step two um and it's that is actually where a lot of people get stuck because really like (laughs) because one is admit you're powerless over alcohol Mm -hmm. and drugs or whatever
3: which is where i I got stuck
0: yeah (laughs) and that's where people are like and that's where hearing all these stories and the you know the demoralization and the cunning baffling and powerful you're like well okay yes step one i am powerless over this this shit like i Mm -hmm. cannot i have tried all the things i know how to try can't do it step two is came to leave a power that greater ourselves could restore us to sanity and i was like i don't know (laughs) like (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think, and this is also where you get the terminal uniqueness of like, I'm my my insanity is pretty special. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Your insanity may have been cured. Fine. Mm. Like, But no, my insanity is pretty special. That's just really funny to me. Like, well, I can't believe he did that. Well, <laughs> I, think what's, I think what's interesting- <laughs> It's like a little code phrase, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> well, what I think is different in this story from perhaps his later ones, um, and I'm thinking about Desperation uh, specifically, is- Um, He talks about the persistence of it, but then this is followed by a kind of very pat sort of ending where he realizes that this sort of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for this like small tick version almost of the monster, the li- of the library policeman monster, has uh, grafted itself onto her neck. And that's why she's feeling this way. And essentially he removes it and crushes it beneath a train. Um, and then she's fine. I mean, I don't think they imply that it's like everything is fixed, but there is this sort of sense. It's like mm-hmm. you have this uh, you know, virus or whatever that's implanted on you. And then he removes it, which um, is something that I don't know if he would put in other books like the idea that it can be so easily removed and plucked from this person and thus you know fixing those dark thoughts because she's saying like because uh when he's removing it it's not her voice it's the voice of the demon that's coming through her mouth and stuff and then all of that is removed when he removes the other thing and so um but then you know you look later at uh desperation let's say and there is this kind of ongoing thing about you know, God is cruel, and uh, perpetual surrender, I think, and, you know, and just the idea of God making us live, and the idea that I think the persistence that he's discussing is more real to him now that he's, you know, lived however many years um, in recovery. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if that resonates or if that if that peaks anything for you. But uh, for me, I found it, you know, I find it interesting to look at this thing he wrote right when he was probably starting, and then re- looking at these things he was writing later in life.
0: Know. So I had to look up exactly where "cutting, baffling, and powerful" is, mm-hmm. and I don't. I really should have remembered because it's the thing that we read at the beginning of almost every meeting, which is how it works. Mm-hmm. It's two pages mm-hmm. from the big book, and the section is. Um, Gosh, I really I I love this stuff so much. I want to read more of it. Um, But, uh, you know, with all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. Remember, we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now although my meetings always change that to may you find God now mm. um uh and I think it's funny because it, so he just articulated a little bit of trouble with the second step there in the library police
1: mm-hmm. the
0: next step is the third step is where you turn over your will and your life over the power of a, God, of a over to a power greater than yourself and that's surrender and that is what desperation I think we've talked about this desperation is about the third step yeah yeah which is turning over your will in your life to this thing that may do shit you don't like.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. May ask of you things that you think are terrible. And also if you believe there's a power grid, it's sort of like, why is the question that people have all the time on step three is why would my, if, if there is a God and all these terrible things happen, why would I turn my will in my life over to this God?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, why yeah. would I do that? Yeah. I have said that many times in my own head, like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And that's where I get stuck, you know? And that's why I think like when I say I'm in recovery, I'm not saying I'm recovered. I'm good now, you know, because none of us really say that. So right, (laughs) yeah, but it's like an ongoing thing and it it does sneak back up. Like I got tempted for the first time in probably a year the other day when I was talking about like my realtor brought this thing over and like, it's a thing that when I think about my mental illness outside of addiction, I think of it's not going away. It's Mm -hmm. not, cured it's that you learn how to manage it you know and you learn how Mm -hmm. to live life on life's terms rather than me trying to like force my will on it
2: um yeah and I think I look at uh I think in regards to the concept of God, higher power, uh, King has this other quote from Rolling Stone where he says, I choose to believe in God because it makes things better. You have a meditation point, a source of strength. I don't ask myself, well, does God exist or does not exist? I choose to believe that God exists and therefore I can say, God, I can't do this by myself. Help me to not take a drink today. Help me to not take a drug today. And that works fine for me, is what he says. Yeah,
0: And I I will add that that is the way that when I'm trying to explain my journey mm-hmm. to someone that's really stuck on the third step, I talk about that. Well, why don't you just choose? Like, why don't you just like, I don't know, like whatever. Yeah. If, if Take it and, and, and just make the choice to believe because then there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. Yeah. And if you can, in a way, like for when I tell newcomers is you don't really have to believe Mm -hmm. Like it can just be kind of an open question, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's sort of like, this is the step in the instruction book. You can't get past this point in the book, this point in the instructions, unless you do this thing at least halfway Mm -hmm. and then you start to do the other stuff. And maybe you never get more than halfway believing. Right. But as long as you're like, okay, maybe Mm -hmm. like, I guess. And I, so my dad's a mathematician and, um, this I'm making point. (laughs) <laughs> and um, uh, pretty confirmed atheist. Mm-hmm. And I remember like talking about God with him when I was a teenager, when I was kind of questing, and I was like, Dad, why don't you believe in God? And he said, Well, because he doesn't exist. And I was like, mm, All right, well, that that conversation's not right. Yeah. Go, go very far. It was none of this like cruel, bad things happen or like whatever. It's just like, eh, you know, not there. And um, like when I was in my like first or second year of recovery, my dad had gone with me to get my coin in a a few times and been at these meetings where we do a lot of prayer and um f- i finally this is ha- becoming un- less self-centered i was like oh well maybe this is uncomfortable for my dad to sit through all this prayer maybe i should ask him about it you mm. know and I, I did i was remember we were in the car driving back and uh, i was like so dad i just want to say like you know i really appreciate you coming to these meetings i know you're an atheist and this might be uncomfortable for you to, to be to sit through all these prayers he's like no that's okay and he was like, and I was thinking about it, you know. I guess if I was an alcoholic and you told, and I, and the way to get sober was these 12 steps, well, I guess I'd have to believe in God, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, cause, mm-hmm. cause that's how it works. And I was like, if only. Everyone looked at it. Yeah, way. yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and it is yeah. just—it is just super interesting. I think to look at desperation through that lens um, and that struggle, because I—I I done. And I know that that definitely opened things up for me a little bit, and like you know, there is this sort of. Um, I don't know. I think that book is really about this sort of meeting point between David's vision of God and then Johnny's vision of God, you know, as they, mm-hmm. as they kind of collide in the middle. Um, yeah. and that's just super interesting for me.
0: Um, and that yeah. you don't have to solve the question of why do bad things happen?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes. To me, yes. that's
0: like the thing that's important about this book is yeah. that there isn't a question. There isn't an answer to the question Well, why do bad things happen?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause that's a bigger question than any of us, you know? And I think like me believing, because that's the place that I get really stuck on. That's not for God's benefit. That's for me. That's me. Like I can choose what understanding I have of that. And I've kind of gravitated over a bunch of different understandings of what God is because, and I talked about this a lot in our desperation episode, but a lot of the, my understanding of what God is led to me drinking. So that that box that I had it in was not going to work for me anymore. So I'm currently trying to figure out what it is and I'm kind of just sitting with I believe there's something and I believe it helps me and that's where I am right mm-hmm. now you know
0: and yeah. I would add that is all it has to be mm-hmm. you you can never get farther than that and I don't even like to use the word farther because that implies there's like a, a destination mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. implies that there's a specific way to do it Um, it, 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 and, and this I'm, I'm really digging in on this because I do feel like if people are listening to this episode and wanting to gain an understanding of Especially 12 step recovery. One of the things that scares people away is that, well, I have to believe in God.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's really not that. Yeah. It's just not me is also a way that some people put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's yeah. just not me. Like, if there is, is there a power greater than myself? Well, the other question to ask is, is I, am I the most powerful thing in the universe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. If yeah. you can admit you're not the most powerful thing in the universe, well, then there's, there is a power greater than you.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, oh, so just go with it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Just go with that. You yeah. know?
2: Um, were there any other yeah. texts that we wanted to talk about in regards to recovery? Um, if not, we can talk about, we have some resources we can share, but um, what do you guys think? I w-
0: Father Callahan.
2: Oh, yes. yeah. Let's yes. talk about Callahan. And also, whatever, uh, Jen, I know you have something as yeah, well.
3: Yeah, I have a couple more things I want to say about Dr. Sleep.
2: But okay, cool. cool. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah why go, don't you, you go ahead, ahead and then we'll we'll talk about Callahan.
3: Um, Well, one of the things I think, like, I love looking at King's career and comparing The Shining and Dr. Sleep and just Mm -hmm. the two completely different understandings of what recovery is. And I think... Um, the Shining is so much about isolation, you know, yeah. and Dr. Sleep is so like that. There's a quartet in Dr. Sleep, you know, yeah. and I think that's something that King has been like. He writes about quartets throughout his career and that's something he's drawn to. And you read Dr. Sleep and you feel like he finally has found that and he's found the way that this helps him, you know. And um, the other thing that I want to say about um, this is I'm doing this um, trauma therapy called um, brain spotting and it's related to your eye um eye movement and it digs up like memories and like trauma that's stored in your brain so i'm calming myself down as I talk about this Um, but so I had a particularly sensitive and like really intense session the other day and she was saying do you want to do any container work to try to because I had to continue with my day and I couldn't just sit like crying in a ball Um, and so I said yeah let's do it and so she said I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine a box and I want you to look at the lid of that box and it's a lock box and she just started going through these like visualization things which is exactly what um, Dick tells Danny to do with the ghosts and it was just this really Like I have read Dr. Sleep three or four times. And so in that moment when she was walking me through this, I was like, yes, I get this. I can do this. And I put these things away. And, you know, it was still the rest of the day. I cried a little bit, but, you know, it was, it didn't destroy me. And I was able to kind of work through this. And I just think that's, that shows that King has done this and he has this intimate knowledge. And the other thing that I want to say that's a tool that I've used in my recovery is an image from Gerald's game, an image of older Jess talking to younger Jess. Mm. And I—that that is something when I have these like I've been talking about reparenting and going back and saying like what I wish my dad had said to me in that moment. And so that's an image. I keep it on my phone. And sometimes when I'm having a really, uh, I'm feeling something really, really strong, I'd say, okay, what, what do you want to say to young Jen? And so I think about them sitting and it's the image from the adaptation of them sitting under that big red eclipse and I'm going to not cry when I talk about it, but it's just that, that helps me, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to pull it up in my brain without seeing it, but you
0: know, yeah, that's lovely. So. I,
3: I, yeah,
0: I mean, I could talk about reparenting for a while too. <laughs> yeah.
3: um, maybe we can have a part two on that one. Yeah, um, a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it is somewhat misunderstood in popular culture, much mm-hmm. like recovery in general. This idea of the inner child, mm-hmm. um, but it does come up a lot in recovery when I am working with a sponsor, especially because one of the jobs of the sponsor. This is also something he sort of gets at in doctor sleep, which is, yes, a sponsor's supposed to be a little bit tough on you and like kind of hold you accountable. Um, not a little bit tough, tough and hold yeah. you accountable. But the other thing a sponsor is good for is to keep you from beating up on yourself, mm-hmm. to be the, the guideline to be, you know, I always think of it as like the, one of those uh, plastic fences on the highway, like that yeah. you give some, but mm-hmm. you then snap back, so yeah. like the sponsors don't let you maybe go a little bit into the area of self pity because there's some there is some use for that. But you know what? Gotta bring you back from the self-pity. Yeah. And yeah. the thing that I often hear from people who are sponsors or people that I look up to in the program is, you know, what would you tell younger you, baby you, if if she was thinking about herself in the way that you are now thinking about yourself? Or if someone else was telling little Anna, and I could cry right now, like if someone else is telling Anna, little Anna she's lazy and irresponsible and never going to be worth anything, what would you do? And I'm gonna throw myself, you know, like <laughs> 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 I would throw myself in front of that person, you know, yeah. and and that's really helpful, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, and and it's an exercise that I go to a lot,
3: you know, yeah, like, yeah. So. Well, and and you've walked me back from some of that in this very episode of like, no, 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 don't beat yourself up. And it's, you know, because it's a tendency, like, that's what we do, you know, that's how our brains work, you know, and yeah. it takes practice, I, you know.
0: I always say that for me, like, um, I haven't had a really strong craving in a while like that. I think about drinking, I'll just make a distinction between like thinking and, uh, you know, a random kind of thought about a drink and then like having the white knuckle like. Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I haven't had a. a a a ton of, of white knuckle experiences in sobriety. But the thing I always say is I relapse on self-hatred all the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Like that's (laughs) the bottle
0: that I reached for. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it provides the same weird comfort and self-destruction that booze does for me. If I really want to like tie one on with self-hatred, like I can get to a very similar place of, of where I'm drinking. Mm -hmm. I kind of numb everything out. I'm drowning in self-pity. I can't think about other people at all. Um and I know that if I drink enough of that self-hatred, I will eventually go to alcohol because mm-hmm. why not? Right? Because I'm a piece mm-hmm. of shit. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I also am just really especially for women, I'm a really strong believer in the power of language. And we women everywhere but female alcoholics especially tend to self-deprecate and um, diminish and talk about things not being a big deal. And I just can't do it. I can't let another woman do it. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I have a sponsee that called herself a procrastinator the other day and I was like, nope, can't (laughs) do that. Yeah. Nope. You can say I didn't do this thing in time for the deadline because that's Mm -hmm. just a true fact. And you can say, I was scared to start on this project because I'm worried I'm going to fail, but I will mm-hmm. not let you describe yourself as something that we always say, that we always think of as like a bad thing, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. especially Definitely. in our capitalist society, we, <laughs> Yeah, right, call procrastinators to be procrastinators to sin. So yeah. anyway,
3: for um, all you ladies out there. <laughs> I know, I feel like I'm going to cry when you're saying that because I do that all the time, you know. Um, (sighs) Oh, and I do, too. And
0: that's why I have to say it over and over.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it gets. Yeah.
2: Anna, tell us about Callahan.
0: Oh, yes. So uh, obviously we, we know Father Callahan from Salem's Lot um and i you can tell he wrote it early in recovery because it's a pretty flat portrayal of alcoholism (laughs) (laughs) yes or not early in recovery like early before recovery because it's just like god i want to drink (laughs) you know Uh (laughs) oh boy i could sure use a drink i want to drink right now which is like the most like kind of superficial portrayal of alcoholism you can have but then when we get to father callahan in the dark tower series um, it's a much more nuanced portrayal of the desire to drink and the desire to get sober. And again, there's a symbolism that may or may not have been conscious of being marked, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and wanting to be a good person mm-hmm. and feeling like you can't be, yeah. you know, because you have this thing that makes you a bad person, mm-hmm. right? And his struggle with that really – So I'll just tell the story. So I had a really rough – a lot of people have rough first years of recovery, but, like, I had this relapsing boyfriend. Um, My mom also was relapsing and couldn't stay sober, Um, and she wound up getting – she had had cirrhosis and wound up drinking herself to death.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, I was reading the Dark Tower series while all of this was happening. And it was some of the worst times of like, for me, it wasn't, I wasn't craving a drink, but I was like, why the fuck should I stay sober? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's going to be this bad, right? If I'm going to be this miserable all the time, which I was exaggerating to myself a little bit. um, What's the fucking point? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And I happened to be reading, this is, I guess, the, from the, we, you know, behind the scenes, we had to find this quote for me, but um. <laughs> uh wolves of calla right um and i was reading it and i remember it was late at night and i uh, whatever probably had a shitty day um and he's at an aa meeting and uh he says i'm grateful i haven't had a drink or a drug today he says falling back on the old faithful they're always that to be grateful for they murmur their approval the man next to callahan says he's grateful for his sister going to, his going to let him come for Christmas and no one knows how close Callahan came to saying I'm grateful I haven't seen any type 3 vampires or lost pet posters today <laughs> and this is the weird thought that I had number one I was like yes
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know right he is right I'm grateful I haven't had a drink or a drug today and that is all it has to be and then I was like this deeply identification I'm like wow you know what like what Father Callahan is going through that's so much like what I'm going through Except for the vampires. (laughs) The vampires are a point where I really have trouble identifying in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because that's what we say in meetings. Are you supposed to identify in and identify? I'm like, I don't know about the vampires. And then I had this other thought, which was um, I haven't had a drink or a drug today. And it like i this light moment I'm like, and that's a fucking miracle. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Oh my God. What was I what was I thinking? God was active in my life today. Yeah. Like a fucking miracle took place because I should be dead right now or drunk or high. And I am not. So God was present in my life today. Wow. Like just like this amazing sort of sense of like maybe there is like this supernatural kind of thing that I'm that's helping me. Oh, God, that means there's vampires. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thought process mm, was like well, if God has kept me sober, then there's something supernatural in the world. And whoa, fuck. Mm. <laughs> that means there might be such a thing as vampires. Yeah, And I scared myself so badly. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I've since kind of like that logic isn't as appealing to me. But in that moment mm. where I was in this kind of like dire emotional place and I was living by myself for the first time, you know, and it was this old apartment. And I remember, like, there must have been, like, a creek just, like, right at that moment. because I was just, like, oh. No. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that moment was really powerful for two reasons. One was this idea that, like, oh, right. I didn't use today. And that's
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's something that shouldn't be.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a miracle. And I do mean, like, straight up, according to Hoyle, God, miracle. <laughs> yeah. And then that opened up this door for this like weird like oh maybe supernatural like maybe there is shit mm-hmm. like out there that I don't understand.
1: Yeah.
0: Then um, that's that's my Father Callahan story. I love
2: it. <laughs> I love it, and I think that's a great Thank way, uh, great um, way for us to wrap this up. I, I I relate to it in in you know under different contexts. I think um, I think my own journey with God. I had a lot of moments where. Um, I began to have very like earth shaking moments of, of supernatural um, I don't know, invading my life and and, in ways that were both positive and also very scary, I think. But, but I I love that. I think that's such a great story. Um, I think a good way to leave us is to share some resources. um, If you know, any of this is struck a chord or if you're interested in just learning more, um, what would you guys recommend? Just
3: go to a meeting.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean
0: <laughs> meetings aren't for everyone and yeah, you know, I think Jen and I are try to I try to be careful and I think Jen is too to talk about how recovery can look different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but um at a AA meeting or any kind of 12 steps meeting there's also NA, there's women in recovery, there's a lot of places that use the the framework of the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. AA is the oldest. It's kind of got the strongest network. Yeah. I would recommend AA for anyone with any kind of chemical dependency. NA has a lot going for it as well. And I've been to NA meetings and they're awesome. Um, But you might want to start with AA. And that um, no one's going to make you do anything. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. All people, the most annoying thing that will happen is people will come over and introduce themselves to you. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of can't stop that. (laughs) Although you sort of can. Like if you were just really like, uh, okay, fine. Like, hi. You know, people will get it. You know, they'll leave you alone. Someone might go so far as to, like, make you take their number.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. But no one is going to expect you to call them. Yeah. No one's going to expect you to come back. And I want to make very, very clear this other point. They're not trying to be your friend.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: No one is asking for a social commitment. No one is asking you to like them. No one is going to – you don't have to worry about them liking you. Like, it's not a social club. Yeah. Mm Yeah. They're giving you their number and introducing themselves in case you need to save your life. Very different. Mm -hmm. It was a real. I. It was very important for me to realize that I wasn't in a social situation when I went to a meeting. Mm -hmm. That you're there for something much more personal than that. Yeah. Um. I also would say for for it that this sounds you know cliche, but Jen's mentioned therapy. Just it, you can start by talking to your therapist about it,
1: mm-hmm, and
0: mm-hmm. and although we joked, I joked about admitting you have a problem is, is not being the first step. It is that I often say it's the first half step. Mm-hmm. It's like step zero. Um, and if you can get to a place where you tell someone you, I think I might, you know, have a problem.
3: Like that's gonna that's
0: might get some you know momentum yeah
3: Yeah. and it makes it easier it's just it takes a little bit of the obstacle away to getting you to a meeting or getting to say like some of the harder stuff you know
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and I think a couple of things that I want to say about meetings and I've kind of been in and out of meetings is um You don't have to share if you go either. Like I sat in a meeting for three months without saying a word because I would have to say I'm an alcoholic before I could share. And I mean, again, they weren't going to force me to say those words, but that was the accepted norm. And I was not ready to say that. And that was totally fine. Nobody was looking at me like, when are you going to share it? You know, Um, I also want to say every group is different, you know. And so if you it's like we talk about kind of um, shopping for therapists sometimes or like dating uh, to try to find a therapist that fits. And I think AA is the same way. Like I've gone to different groups um, that just didn't feel right. And then I found some that did feel really right. So if you find one that's a little, it just doesn't, you know, it's just not the vibe you're really looking for. Maybe go back one more time uh-huh. because it could be. I think there's a, the the
0: guideline I heard was like go three times before you three stop times going. F- Although that okay. does sound like a lot. Um, and I yeah. also will say that AA is – very old-fashioned in many ways and one of the ways is we we do use the phone a lot mm-hmm. and so if you're wondering well how would i get started with this believe it or not i'm going to suggest you make a phone call yeah. <laughs> uh which is a AA, all over the world have things they call intergroup that's what you would look up in the white pages or google that and believe it or not there is going to be someone who answers the phone 24 hours yeah and it's crazy mm-hmm. that that happens but it's true and what that person will do will help you find a meeting or listen to your story um and if they're helping you find a meeting there are all kinds of meetings not just sort of in they're all called AA and they have different personalities, but there's women's only meetings. There's LGBTQ meetings.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there are meetings for survivors of trauma. There are meetings I, you can have. All meetings are independent, so they can kind of call themselves whatever they want. There's meditation meetings. There's meetings that are focused on the promises. Mm-hmm. There's meetings that are focused on just step one. I go to a meeting that's one, two, three, meaning um, step one, two and three, and then we just start over again. Mm -hmm. There are meetings where you read the big book. There are meetings where someone will tell their story. And then afterwards, you just kind of talk about their story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So and if you call that number and the intergroup, the intergroup person will probably be able to talk you through, you know, what kinds of meetings are available. There are newcomer meetings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Jen, have I left any out? Like, I think.
3: You know, um, those are the ones that I remember. I also want to say there's, there's Al-Anon too, which oh, is, I yes, think like yes, the sister yes. program to AA, which is, I think that's more geared to, um, people who support alcoholics or who have, whose lives have been affected. Oh, I would not but, even
0: say, I would just say lives been affected. Like you don't, been I would make very yeah. clear, like, um, Al-Anon it has, I think some people, if they've ever heard of it, think it's about helping someone get sober mm-hmm. and Al-Anon is actually about the disease of alcoholism is a family disease. Mm. And it's and I thought Al-Anon was going to be like I have to break up with my using boyfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's what alcoholic that, that's what Al-Anon was was is going to make me do tough love. And that's actually not what Al-Anon's about. Al-Anon just said asked me to think about what was I getting out of the relationship?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If he was using.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: did I want to be with someone who couldn't give me the things I deserved. And if I decided, well, for now I do, that was okay.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, and Alateen is a program too for the children of alcoholics. And again, not, you don't have to think of it in the context of either tough love or supporting the person no matter what they do. Mm -hmm. It's neither of those things.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: And Jen, you wanted to talk about CODA. I did. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to CODA because that was- I lost,
2: oh, oh, you got
3: me? Yeah. Um, I think Coda, when I think about all the meetings I went to, I have a special place in my heart for my Coda meeting, which is Codependence Anonymous. And it was, it's funny because the people that in my Alana or AA meetings would go out of their way, will not even kind of follow me into the parking lot as I was trying to run away to avoid talking to people to just say, hey, um, but the Coda people, like the meeting was over and we just walked out quietly and we all sat in our cars until the meeting started. And, but then once the meeting started, it's like they were just some of the sweetest people. And I got a lot of help. From that meeting. So there are lots of different kinds of 12 step meetings that you can go to, and Uh you know, you just find what's the right one that works for you. Yeah. And no one's going to make you do
0: anything. That I think is the most important thing that we can probably communicate is that you don't have to say anything. You Mm -hmm. don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. You can just sit in a corner and AA people are pretty good about if you're sitting in a corner, they'll just kind of let you sit there. They
3: will. Yeah. And I said, like, I don't want to mischaracterize like he wasn't creepily following me into the parking lot. He was just like, Hey, I don't (laughs) want you to leave without somebody talking to you, you know? And then I said, Hey, and I walked away and he was fine. You know, that's because they've all been there. Everybody has had their first day of sobriety. That's in that meeting, you know?
2: Well, cool. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, illuminating, empowering. And um, thank you guys so much for opening up. It's been really cool, especially through the lens of King. And um, I think I think approaching his books with these kinds of ideas can really open up new doors when you're reading King. Um, it's obviously very important to him. So, uh yeah thank you so much for listening uh please follow us on our socials uh you can find us on our patreon at patreon.com slash the barons we've got all kinds of good stuff in there including an interview with glenn mazzara who created the amazon dark tower pilot that never went forward tragically uh we got to watch it and we did a review on the main feed but you'll really want to listen to our interview on the patreon it's really good so find us over there at the barons and uh let's sign off long days and, and
3: pleasant,
2: pleasant night.
1: night bye I got some hot friends I got get some hot friends I got some hot friends I gotta get some hot friends but you know you want somebody to treat you good
2: this is the end of our show for now We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP
0: Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.